0: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, My name is John Lenchofsky. I'm president of the Institute, and I'm delighted to see you all here. Uh, We have the great honor of uh, receiving today uh, Sir Anthony Selden uh, as our speaker, Uh, and uh, his remarks will be preceded by um, a little video that we're going to show about the, about, uh, the University of Buckingham where he is serving as the vice chancellor. Um, Sir Anthony is a leading contemporary historian, uh, educator, commentator, and political author in Great Britain. He was the master of Wellington College, one of uh, Britain's leading independent schools until uh, 2015. He is the author, or editor, of over 40 books on uh, contemporary history, politics, and education. Um, He is really one of the leading historians of the uh, modern prime ministership uh, in the UK. He was the co-founder and first director of the Center for Contemporary British History, is the co-founder of Action for Happiness, and is the honorary historical advisor to Number 10 Downing Street. His uh, many other activities include being on the First World War Centenary Cultural, uh, uh, is it commission? Is that right? The, 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 excuse me? Council. Council. Okay. Uh, He is a governor of the Royal Shakespeare Company. He was knighted in uh, 2014 for his extraordinary services to education and modern political history. We are delighted to have him here, and his presence here has very much to do with the possibility of the Institute of World Politics uh, uh, embarking upon a collaborative relationship with the University of Buckingham, So uh, perhaps we can begin first with the, uh, the video, and then the floor will be yours, Sir Anthony. Thank you. standing teacher. First place in the Times Teaching Awards. First, the
1: Teaching Ratio. First place in the National Student oh. Survey. As we launched a campaign for free thinking to grow the world's finest
0: small, innovative, independent university. It's about extraordinary people achieving extraordinary things. Inspiring building,
1: inspiring spaces.
0: Inspiring facilities. Digital technologies that change the world. Students not only study but also their own businesses. And running countries. Protecting freedoms by teaching respect for the rule of law. Looking at the past to understand the future. Experience for this totally independent medical school, where we begin and end with patients. Inspiring the next generation of teachers and school leaders. Making our world safer by looking at the threats to our security and to our way of
1: life. Creating sporting leaders where the mind is as
0: important as the body. A sense of family. Together, let's ensure that the University of Buckingham remains astonishing. Astonishing and
1: refreshingly original for the next 100 years. Join us at the University of Buckingham. to the University of Buckingham. Okay, so uh, can I just say what a great honor it is to be at the Institute of World Politics. And uh, we are very proud to have our relationship with it at the University of Buckingham. And uh, the University of Buckingham, as you all know, is seated in the front row here, especially for you. Um, and, uh, but see me at the end, please, we're late. It's um, <laughs> uh, the only uh, university in, in Britain that Margaret Thatcher was personally associated with. Uh, she was our chancellor in the um, 1990s, and she helped found the university, she nurtured it, and we are about to create the Thatcher School of Governance in London. Um, All we need is uh, $20 million uh, to make that happen. Uh, By the time I finish talking to you in um, 45 minutes, I expect that figure to be doubled. Uh, Because I'm told that you are all profoundly uh, wealthy, uh, that you are desperate to give your money to me, Uh, and that nothing is gonna stop you uh, in the cause of liberty, uh, in the cause of freedom, uh, and in the cause of education. So thank you in advance. Uh, And can I say, you may be very happy. Okay, now I'm gonna be talking to you, apart from all that, about uh, 54 extraordinary people. Uh, I would have talked about the comparison between them and the 44 presidents of the united states but i was asked just to concentrate on is that working um i was asked just to concentrate just on the uh, british prime minister so i think what we'll do i have about 150 slides here so that means that we've got a lot of slides to get through and you will want to look very very carefully because when the test comes at the end. You, They could be on any one of these, all right? So you're going to have to be looking very, no, at the screen here. Very, very carefully. Come in. Uh, yeah, thank you very much. So we're going to go through this. Can we actually have these lights off? So that... Uh, I think that's great. i would take those ones off there, yep. Okay, so um, are you all sitting comfortably? I have... <laughs> before we do that... Uh, is that? Do I have one of those one of those wonderful gadgets that means? Well, am I just going to press that, um, like that one there? No. Nope. Yes. Yes, sir. That's it. Yep. Okay. So there you are, in search of the uh, Prime Minister. Well, that's a pretty stupid uh, title, isn't it? Because uh, they in fact live at Downing Street. So, um, so that's the end of the talk. Thank you very much indeed. Any questions? Uh, we have actually found the Prime Minister, um, and. Um, so that's me, and um, it's 54 characters. So so I am uh, also the historian of Downing Street, and um, so I'm writing a new book, and, and next year about it, I wrote, I've written a couple of books about Downing Street, and I have written the inside uh, stories of the last four prime ministers, uh, John Major, who very few people have heard of, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown and um, David Cameron. So, um, and we're going to go through them, um, and we're going to go through them in the right direction rather than the wrong direction. Good. Uh, Marvellous. So in order of appearance, they are, I'm going to go through this very quickly, he was the first Prime Minister and uh name was uh, Robert Warpole. he was also the longest serving uh, he created the office of prime minister uh, and he you could all ask, well why did we need a uh, head of government when we had in Britain a head of state and the big biggest single reason why Robert Walpole appeared is that after the glorious revolution of sixteen eighty eight Uh, uh, There were a series of uh, monarchs who came in, particularly the Hanoverians from the early 18th century who lived, as their name would imply, at Hanover, Uh, in what is now Germany and they didn't speak English and that was a great handicap communicating uh, with the British. It's pretty hard communicating with the British at the best of times but if you don't understand the language it's even harder. So uh, there needed therefore to emerge somebody who would be able to communicate well with people and the idea came up of a uh, prime minister. He was also the first to move into Downing Street, number 10. We're going to see pictures of it in a moment. So he is someone I definitely want you to um, to, 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 to bear in mind, Robert uh, Walpole. Uh, the next we can pass by very quickly. Uh, you'll see that, I mean, in contrast to the first four Uh, Presidents who we could talk about a great deal. I have to say that uh, these figures pale into insignificance. None of them are very distinguished. It might be distinguished looking, but they weren't particularly distinguished in character. Um, Butte, there's going to be one coming along here who I'll just pause. Pitt the Elder, uh, one of the rare uh, Bush, uh, one of the rare father son um, uh, combinations. Uh, as Bush, so here we have Pitt the Elder, Earl of Chatham, really after Walpole the first prominent figure, Um, as was this man here, uh, Lord North, best known for only one factor, uh, the complete disaster of losing uh, the thirteen colonies, and, and I don't know what happened to them um, uh, and you know but clearly it was a seriously regressive uh, move for the history of civilization uh, and there you can see him gazing uh, gazing into the middle distance. uh sad for him to be only remembered for one thing. Prime ministers are often re- remembered for one Factor, uh, but these people remembered for absolutely nothing at all. This man, uh, very uh, quite outstanding, uh, Pitt the younger, the son naturally of uh, Pitt the elder, became prime minister aged 23. Uh, was advised that uh, by his doctor that to cure his perpetual problem of headaches, that he should take uh, a bottle of. Port a day. Uh, when he found that that the headaches didn't go away, they went up, and, and by the time that he was uh, 30, he was taking three bottles of port a day. I mean, I mean, not not we all uh, make up stories about drink. Uh, but this was uh, exactly what happened. An astonishingly effective man, as you can see there, was uh, Prime Minister at the time of the French Revolution uh, and uh, coping with the early Napoleonic Wars. Uh, This, uh, chiefly significant because, was the one Prime Minister out of 54 to be assassinated in contrast to the four out of 44 American presidents to be assassinated. So uh, there is a 2% chance, if you're British Prime Minister, you won't make it to the end, but there is a, um, a 10% chance if you're an American president. Uh, the next person here was uh, very significant because he was Prime Minister at the end of the Napoleonic Wars and at a time of liberalisation of, of the country. Um, this man here, the Duke of Wellington, was the uh, rare example in Britain of a general who, very unusual in Britain, to have a military figure who then goes on to become head of government. Um, this is the one man who managed to achieve that. Uh, He was a remarkably fine general, and a remarkably atrocious Prime Minister. Um, And um, Earl Grey was in in charge at the time of what we call the Great Reform Act of 1832, obviously some of you will know this very well, which was the first big liberalisation of the suffrage, the extension of of the suffrage and the gradual progress of Britain towards a democracy. There were further acts in 1867, 1884, 1918 and 1928 um uh, Melbourne uh, was the prime Minister who inducted uh, the Queen, the new Queen Victoria uh, amorously fell in love with her and thought that she was quite incapable of reading government dispatches so he said that he would start writing a letter to her about what happened in cabinet because it would distress her tender female mind if she was to read any bureaucratic account. I mean, obviously, absurdly patronizing. Uh, And that that technique, then, of the prime minister writing a letter to the monarch was the only record that Britain had of cabinet. Cabinet, obviously, in Britain, far more important than the cabinet in the United States. It was the only record that we had of cabinet meetings until 1916, the 9th of Uh, December 1916, when the Cabinet Office was set up in Britain at the darkest point of the uh, First World War to provide a a proper series of agendas, Cabinet minutes, follow-ups And I've just written a book about that event, uh, which is being launched at Downing Street next Friday, which is the 9th of uh, December 2016, on the 100th anniversary of the birth of modern British government. Uh, Another big anniversary, obviously coming up, is the uh, birthday on the 30th of November of Winston Churchill. So Peel, the Prime Minister who split the Conservative Party, Tory party or Conservative party. This was the time of the emergence of the Conservative party. No sooner had it emerged than it split. And the current split over Europe is the biggest split in the Conservative party since uh, the split then. And that was over the Corn Laws. And again, unsurprisingly, it was an issue that was both in domestic, it was both international and domestic, with both international and domestic implications, as uh, the whole EU issue has for those poor traumatised Brits today. Um, Russell was the Prime Minister at the time of the Crimean War. Uh, Derby extended the franchise. Palmerston was the great Foreign Secretary Prime Minister. Uh, Disraeli was uh, very close to the uh, Prime Minister, was the person who made the Conservative Party much more of a social reforming party. then this man here was the giant of the, uh, the, the, the figure closest to Lincoln in the 19th century, uh, Gladstone, four times Prime Minister. Uh, he was the great ultra um, reactionary conservative, uh, Salisbury, and Rosebery was possibly the worst, I'm going to come on to that. Balfour uh, was Salisbury's uh, nephew, which was his only qualification for taking over office. Uh, Campbell Bannerman was uh, useless. Asquith, Uh, was the Prime Minister who took Britain into the First World War and uh, was heavily distracted during Cabinet meetings because he was writing uh, letters to the woman he was infatuated with, who was his uh, daughter's best friend, Phoenicia Stanley, uh, lost his son on the Somme, Raymond. Uh, This is the man who took Britain into the war, the first genuinely working class. uh, Prime Minister, fearsomely uh, successful at the same time as, uh, uh, as Woodrow Wilson, the first British Prime Minister to meet a president face to face. Uh, Bonnallor was known as the unknown Prime Minister, not without reason. And uh, Baldwin uh, was the giant of the interwar years, the closest to uh, Roosevelt. Um, He was the man who who presided, though on the conservative side, he presided over the unification of the country after the traumas of the First World War, the general strike in Britain, the first uh, general strike. Uh, He was the Prime Minister who helped Make the Labour Party into a democratic rather than a revolutionary force. Uh, Ramsay MacDonald was the first ever Labour Prime Minister in British history. Neville Chamberlain, the man who took Britain into war. Winston Churchill, who came back, notice in 1951 when Truman was uh, President and then Eisenhower. Clement Attlee was the great Labour Prime Minister after the war, uh, who introduced the welfare state. And uh, Macmillan uh, was the Prime Minister at the same time as Kennedy. Uh, Douglas Hume was, uh, in fact, Prime Minister when Kennedy was assassinated. It was the first action that happened to him after he took over. Harold Wilson was the contemporary of L.B. Johnson, resisted British involvement in the Vietnam War. Edward Heath was the man who took Britain into Europe. Jim Callaghan was the man who presided over the disastrous 1970s for Britain. Margaret thatcher uh, we know chancellor best known for being chancellor of the university of buckingham she was also prime minister of great britain john major looking startled he spent most the best part of his six and a half years as prime minister quite startled tony blair the man who promised so much Gordon brown the man who promised so little and and didn't disappoint um Uh, David Cameron, um, and there we are, and Theresa May, uh, who is the surprising Prime Minister, we didn't expect her to be Prime Minister, but in fact she is turning out to be surprisingly successful, do ask me questions, so that's just a kind of romp, Uh, and and then what actually happens to them, uh, this is just quite fun, I'll just go through these quickly, uh, we don't have uh, presidential uh, libraries and, and, and final resting great final resting places uh, for our prime ministers. Why? Because they are only heads of government; they're not heads of state. And the the monarchs uh, have uh, have their own uh, great ceremonies. Uh, they do have. An unfortunate habit of exploding in Windsor Abbey as their um, as their bodies uh, swell inside their coffins, which is one of the things, unfortunate things that happens. But prime ministers doesn't happen. That's the that's the death of uh, Pitt uh, the Elder. Uh, this is where uh, Warpole lived. You can see why many of them thought that Number Ten Downing Street was quite a seedy uh, place. Uh, Westminster Abbey is where most of the prime ministers are uh, buried. Um, uh, since Bonal law they've been cremated uh, that is uh, Disraeli's uh, final resting place uh, that there is Salisbury uh, the great patrician Prime Minister Asquith in Oxford he, um, that there Lloyd George very beautiful uh, Ramsay MacDonald the first Labour prime Minister that's Churchill's very uneventful uh, stone at Bladen just outside um, just outside Blenheim which is just outside Oxford, and Macmillan, um, Wilson. I remember remember taking our children to see Wilson there. I I talked to, I talked to, um, just after I take them there on the Isles of Scilly, which is just just off the coast of Cornwall. Our children said, "Uh, what did he do? And I said to them, well, uh, Prime Ministers are really only remembered for one thing. And um, they said, what was it? And And I said, well, that was quite, Precisely at the point. No one could quite remember what the one thing was that Harold Wilson was remembered for. And I saw David Cameron just after it, and I was just chatting to him about summer holidays. And I said, "You'll be remembered for one big thing too. You've got to work out what that thing is." Of course, that was rather prescient. Um, it just actually just suddenly strikes me now um, about that. And that that is that's Margaret Thatcher. That is uh, where her ashes are. So, we're now just going to look at uh, just some questions here. Why number 10? So, so, who can tell me why it's number 10? Why is it not number one? Um, it is a bit strange, isn't it? So, so there we have 10 Downing Street. Um, and this, uh, so Downing Street is, um, is in fact just. Is, do I have a point here? No, I don't have a point here. I'm going. This is Downing Street. Oh, that's where it is there. This was. Um, so, those of you who've been to London uh, recognise the River Thames, um, and, and this is where the monarchs used to live, um, in what was called Whitehall Palace, until they moved north to Kensington Palace, then St James's Palace, and currently Buckingham Palace. Uh, and there you can see, that's where it was, and this was the centre of government. And Down at the bottom, you can see Westminster Abbey, which, hands up, anyone here who's been to Westminster Abbey, hands up. There's going to be a... Oh, yeah, don't get not show off. Um, so that's Westminster Abbey. you can see down there on the bottom left, uh, and Westminster Hall, uh, and that's Westminster Hall. It's really all that's left of uh, the great palace, the great medieval palace where the Tudors and Stuarts were. Uh, and when it was decaying... Um, a man called George Downing, who was Oliver Cromwell's spymaster, uh, brought up this land ju- just where I pointed and put up a series of a cul de sac of houses. Uh, that is uh, Whitehall Palace. The one part that's left of it, apart from Westminster, a- Westminster Hall by the Abbey, which is off to the right, is the building there on the left, which for those of you who love architecture is Inigo Jones. Uh, which is the banqueting house? Uh, all the rest has uh, burnt down uh, There you can see Downing Street And uh, That was just this row of this cul-de-sac of houses, which this property speculator George Downing put up he um, uh, put up there and um, whoops, Sorry, I'm going the wrong way again. Sorry. Let's get back the right way, and there you can start seeing what it looks like. You can see in the middle of the picture, um, uh, you can see just Uh, behind that wall, that's where Downing Street is already. It was there by 1760. Uh, There's the alterations of 1781 when the people we were talking there, Lord North, heavily distracted. Indeed, if he hadn't been too busy looking at the plans for the redecoration of his house, you would still be part of the British Empire. Uh, Unfortunately, he was distracted uh, trying to work out how to redesign his house, as you can see there, 1781. Um, And you can understand. Uh, it was very confusing. This is here. That that is uh, that is where the um, that that's where the cabinet room is. We're going to see it in just a moment. Uh, and there you can see uh, here. Um, this is. I'm just going to just walk away. Let me just see if I can pick this. Does that work? Yes, it's still working. So here you have. This is the. This here was a whole stream of houses. They came round like that, they came back on that side, a cul-de-sac put up by George Downing. Then there was this house here that was put up for one of Charles II's mistresses. And what happened then in the 1780s was that side and that side were extended onto it. And this here now is Downing Street. This is number 11 where the Chancellor of the Exchequer lives, and that's number 12, which is where the government's communication team work. So there you are. That is uh, Downing Street there from the air. And... Sorry, gone wrong way again. And this is how it looked in 1799. It's really interesting, this. So that's number one, all the way through to 10, 11, 12. I don't, I don't know if you can see that at the back, but believe me, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. So this was all the way coming back on Downing Street. So that explains why number 10 was number 10, because it was the 10th house in a row, where now there's only 10, 11, and 12. The rest have all been pulled down. So, yep. Um, and this is the back of the house when Baldwin was Prime Minister in the uh, 1920s. And you can see there how um, what number 10 looks like on the outs on on the inside and um, here is what it looks like from the back this is the cabinet room this is where theresa may currently has her study and this is where her private secretaries are and these are the three interlinked uh, reception was very small, number 10. I mean, it's, well, number, I mean, the White House is small too. Here are the dining room. That's the large dining room that can take 50. This dining room there can take 12. And this here is number 11, where the Chancellor of the Exchequer, who is the head, as you know, of the British finance, the, the, the financial minister, lives and has his house. Behind it, you have the British Foreign Office, which is where Palmerston uh, designed. So, when that was put up in the 1860s, the all the cul-de-sac houses on the other side, looking just like number 10, but all pulled down. So, there we are. Kind of, so, And that's what it looked like in the 1930s. So, by the 1930s, all that was left of these 26 houses in Downing Street was number 10 here, and number 11 there. Number 12 that was there had been, had been uh, burnt down, and that was all that was left. And at the time... Uh, There was a lot of talk about actually getting rid of number, uh, pulling it all down. As you can see, it looks very dilapidated, doesn't it? And um, then you have bombs landing. That's where the bombs landed during the war, um, and um, very nearly destroyed the the, uh, number number 10 altogether, very nearly killed. Winston Churchill had a premonition that the bombs were going to land and kill him and his staff and he told everyone to come down to the cabinet war rooms that some of you might know about down below and about 10 minutes later a bomb landed that was number a this bomb there Um, that was uh one of the premonitions that he had Uh, and that's the result of the of the war damage look at the picture there hanging down of war pole in the background and the ceiling these were obviously highly classified during the war because it would have been tremendous publicity for the lafaffa Um, And the whole building was falling down by the 1950s, that's uh, Prime Minister Macmillan there in the picture of Disraeli uh, with the shattered number uh, 10, and it was then rebuilt. The whole of it was cracking in the 1950s, but this is what it looks like today. So number 10 here is extended out this way in the early 1960s and that building was put on. That's the British Foreign Office. So the key three departments in the British government are side by side. Number 10 and number 11 here, Foreign Office here and then the Treasury on the other side of the Foreign Office. So. Uh, as you come in, that's what it looks like in the entrance hall. Pictures there of Warpole. You've seen that picture there on the left of the door, and that long connection here going through to the house at the back. So the house here, at the, you can see through the door there, was where uh, Charles II's mistress had her home. Coming through there into the cabinet room, and which is small. I mean, you know, the cabinet room is narrower than this room, and it's about five. No, it's not out of its five feet longer, it's about five feet narrower and perhaps just about two or three feet longer. Uh, That's the grand staircase up which the pictures, portraits of the prime ministers hang. These are photographs that are going to be in the book that I've got coming out next year about Downing Street. That's the picture, that's the room where Margaret Thatcher used to work. That's her picture, her favorite portrait of herself hanging above the fireplace. She loved that room. Again, it's tiny. That's the white drawing room that was... uh, Lady Churchill's favourite room is it's double aspect. It looks out onto St. James's Park one way and the Horse Guards Parade on the other. It's always known as the White Room. And then the next one is the Terracotta Room, which is the third, the middle of the three interlinked rooms. Uh, that that room, the Terracotta Room, is smaller than this room. The pillared room there is, is ever so slightly larger. That is number 10. These are the biggest rooms in it. And there you can see just, um, if you can just, that picture is taken just here, uh, of the dictators, Hitler never went to Downing Street, but um, uh, but this man here did, um, and you can see that's the pillar there, there's the double doors that you can see there, and that is, who can recognize that person? Okay, Benito Mussolini. And uh, there you have uh, the British Prime Minister at the time, Andrew Bonalore, sitting on Mussolini's right, our left, and looking as if he hasn't a clue about what's going on. Um, This is the state drawing room when uh, the president comes over. This is where he will have, he regularly has dinner. The gardens, again, uh, at Dining Street used for uh, entertaining. So let's move on now to question number two. Is it one job or many? Well, in fact, the Prime Minister has a whole series of jobs. He's not head of state, obviously, she's not head of state. But within that, they have a whole series of uh, of functions, which have all accumulated. They're the first Lord of the Treasury. That's very important. They move into number 10 in uh, 1735. It's not till 1870 uh, that the Prime Minister, not the monarch, not the head of state, starts calling cabinet meetings. It's not, the word Prime Minister is only used in 1878, before that they were known as the First Minister. And um, first Prime Minister's questions that you obviously will all have seen, uh, what happens there 1881. That was important because then they started answering questions about the whole of government. Not till 1904, just over 100 years ago, did the Prime Minister acquire the right rather than the monarch to dismiss ministers. And 2001, only 15 years ago, for the first time in British history, were the powers listed. They still remain vague. Do remember that Britain doesn't have a single document written constitution. It just has a whole plethora of different statutes and constitutions uh, and, and documents. These are the roles, the ten adapt the ten adaptions for the Prime Minister, the decline of the monarchy, the rise of cabinet, the decline of empire, the rise of elections and political parties, decline of the House of Lords, the rise of the media and public opinion polls, the decline of the foreign office and Treasury, um, b- increasing in power, the rise of number 10 staff that effectively becomes an executive office of the President, and they've had to adapt themselves to uh, an enormous rise of technology and to the rise of the European Union, and subsequently the fall. So that's uh, the jobs of the Prime Minister, they are the financial manager, they manage cabinet, they manage their parties, they manage the monarch, They manage the security of the nation, they look after MI5, MI6 and GCHQ, which collectively are the tripartite intelligence agencies of the United Kingdom. They manage both diplomacy, they manage trade, they manage public image, they manage the integrity, the territorial integrity and sovereignty of the UK. Uh, you need to be to be a successful prime minister. Not many are that successful. Clarity, courage, tenacity, firm nerves, thick skin, decisiveness, ruthlessness, luck, oratory ability to understand material quickly, a quick grasp of others, and quick processing skills. There have been um, five Liberal prime ministers, six Labour, sixteen Whig, and twenty-six Conservatives of the total of fifty-four. So, question number three. What makes a successful Prime Minister? The, we'll concentrate just on the higher order numbers. Lloyd George, the man who uh, presided over the winning of the First World War. Atlee created the welfare state. Disraeli introduce, introduced social policy, extended the franchise in the 19th century. You needed to have social policy with the factories in the conditions that they were. Margaret Thatcher only coming at number six, Prime Minister at the time of great liberalization of the British economy, and the putting of trade unions back in their place, and restoration of Britain's uh, status on the international stage, beginning with the Falklands War in 1982, and finishing with all the Cold War maneuverings with the end of the uh, coming down of the Berlin Wall in her penultimate year in power. Robert Peel creator of the modern Tory party unifier of the nation Walpole the man who created the office of first minister or prime minister Gladstone the great uh, giant of the whole 19th century William Pitt the younger the man who was the first that strongest he consolidated the, the, the national finances in Britain, the greatest uh, financier the country's ever had, and Winston Churchill, the man who saved the country in the darkest days of the Second World War. Uh, now, there are many contenders here. Um, these were absolute shockers because no one knows who they are. Um, but let's concentrate on North, uh, thought to be a disaster because of ...losing the uh, colonies, Aberdeen, um, who was utterly and totally indecisive, Uh, Chamberlain, who failed to stand up to Hitler, and finally Anthony Eden, Prime Minister at the time of the Suez Crisis, who was, despite his close relationship with... um, Eisenhower from the Second World War failed to nurture that relationship uh, after Eisenhower became prime minister in January, sorry, president in January 1953 onwards, and fell out very significantly with the Secretary of State, who was Don Foster Dulles, and indeed with Alan Dulles, his brother. So, um, then, how might we explain? You know, why do some fail and others do? Well if you want to be successful, you have to be there for a long time. Remember, too obvious to state, but in Britain, there's no fixed term for our head of government, unlike the president, indeed unlike presidents in most countries. Um, So the longer you're there, the second longest serving is Pitt at 18 years, Liverpool 14. So to be there for a long time, certainly helps a great deal. Thatcher was nearly made 12 years, Blair incredibly over 10 years palmerston nine if you were there for a short time you're really not going to be these are these people are as you can see i mean they're now it's down to days uh you're not going to make uh that kind of impact to have the right importance the, to be the right educated at the right place is obviously important eton uh 21 um uh, which means that almost half the British Prime Ministers just went to just one uh, public school. I mean, that is pretty extraordinary, isn't it? Uh, half of them went to Oxford and a, a, a nearly a third to Cambridge. So you can see the importance of not just being the right social class, but having the right education. Uh, however, um, the numbers didn't go to university at all. Um, Those, the people who, uh, those those are the other universities they went to, Glasgow, Edinburgh, but really, these are the people who didn't attend any university, Wellington, Lloyd George, Churchill, uh, and John Major. So, height is very important, the highest, tallest prime minister being Salisbury, Uh, Blair uh, coming at six foot, Uh, David Cameron surprisingly tall, so... uh, And the shortest, uh, David Lloyd George, Churchill only 5'5", Thatcher 5'5", Russell Uh, 5'4", Spencer, the shortest of all, uh, and the one to be assassinated. So that uh, is really thumbs down to being small. Um, Extremely dangerous. And um, the youngest, uh, the age matters. um, in the analysis of trying to understand why some people are successful. Um, So, here are the ages coming through from the youngest. Um, Blair, I would have thought was too young to be successful as Prime Minister. Ditto David Cameron, the youngest Prime Minister for 198 years, just slightly younger than Blair when he took over. Um, And the oldest, some could be, on the other hand, too old Campbell, definitely too old, Russell, far too old, Palmerston, Churchill, 76, when he came back to power, Uh, Gladstone, 82, when he became um, last prime minister. So there's clearly a curve there that says you need to be, if you're too young, that's not going to help you, if you're too old, that's not going to help you, you need to be at a peak, uh, where you have the physical fitness and the wisdom, but before... Um, infirmity and old age starts taking over. So drinkers, um, there are many, many drinkers. Most of our prime ministers have uh, drunk liberally. Um, Here they go. These people all uh, were hugely affected by alcohol. Harold Wilson there mentioned was um, it, it was impossible to get decisions out of him after five o'clock in the evening. Of course, all of this was hid at, hidden at the time. Uh, the least healthy, large number of our prime ministers have been physically ill when they have been uh, in power. Obviously the same game with presidents, and but we're not talking about them. Uh, to be healthy, smaller number is a great advantage. To be a great orator, here are the great orators in Britain, Uh, Peel, you might say that it's no longer so important to be a great orator now in the days of television, but it is. Uh, Asquith, remarkable Lloyd George, the finest of all. Churchill, uh, there he is at uh, joint session of Congress in May 1943. Um, Having a strong spouse, hugely significant, Um, Hester Pitt, um, uh, Julia Peel, Catherine Gladstone kept by it. Look at that commanding picture of her. there. Look at the pride that he has being with her. Clementine was a formidable, that's just a wonderful portrait, that's in the white room in uh, Downing Street by her favorite window seat, uh, having tea. And Dennis Thatcher, formidably powerful uh, as an advisor behind her, she would absolutely not have survived without him. And it was when he gave up on her and said, uh, you have to go, darling, that she decided to go. Um, Equally some terrible uh, marriages. Um, Catherine Wells was married to Wellington. Uh, he didn't see her. Um, he'd, he hadn't seen her for 11 years before they got married. And she came to the altar in a veil. And when the veil was lifted, he said... Anyone know what he said? Uh, um, by by by, Gad, you've changed. Um, and... Um, it was a very sad Palmerston. He, he was constantly unfaithful. Margot Asquith, you can't you see that in the face. Um, and... Uh, Dorothy Macmillan was having an affair with a complete uh, scoundrel of a Prime Minister. Interesting, that's a picture of Macmillan and Kennedy in the background on the the shelf. Um, And he had no idea at all uh, what was going on. Kennedy reportedly said to him at one point, When he was trying to break the ice in their relationship, I find that if I don't have a woman before lunchtime, it gives me a headache. What about you? Uh, And he had no idea at all what Kennedy was talking about. And and he went to his death without understanding, as reported by private secretaries. He was a a wonderful man. And... um, Yeah. And... Mary Wilson was deeply, deeply unhappy, so unhappy in Downing Street that she insisted that her husband didn't carry on in Downing Street the second time he came back as Prime Minister, between 74 and 76, when Ford was president, and they lived nearby in their flat because uh, he was far too close to his secretary called Marcia Williams. and uh, so, so, lots of womanizers. I mean, I don't know where you simply in know where you begin with the prime ministers and womanizing. Uh, but there are some of the most notorious examples. Uh, being experienced is, is helpful. Uh, the most experienced are the figures that you have there. Uh, incredibly, someone called Goderich uh, had 11, uh, was 11 ministerial posts beforehand. Churchill, nine. Macmillan, seven. The least experience, look at those two names at the bottom, Tony Blair and David Cameron came to number 10 Downing Street without any experience at all of running anything uh, uh, or running any government department. Uh, Theresa May had been Home Secretary, Minister of the Interior, for six years. So, absolutely not in that category herself. Intellectuals, being an intellectual isn't necessarily helpful for a Prime Minister. Some of the worst Prime Ministers are those who are brightest, partly because they can see too many sides um, and become indecisive. Um, So, just coming through now, um, how do they promote their image? Well, with power. Uh, Here are the houses that they lived in um, in uh, Downing Street. That was where Wellington, for example, uh, lives and has Wellington's house, which is still there on Hyde Park Corner. Some of you will have seen it. He much sooner lived he lived there rather than Downing Street, which he thought was small and pokey. And that house is still called Number One, London, as some of you will know. Um, And that is where Palmerston lived. That is where Disraeli uh, lived. That is where Gladstone lived. That is where Salisbury lived. Uh, that is the house, because in the 20th century it became clear that you no longer had aristocrats with their own private estates and homes. So in 1911, uh, Lord Leo Farum bequeathed that to the nation, and that is where just about every American president has been for. Um, quiet country conversations with the prime minister it 's about forty miles out away from Downing Street called checkers that 's Churchill nevertheless uh, had his own house in Chartwell in Kent. Well, worth a visit, and that's where Mary Wilson insisted that uh, Harold Wilson and she lived in the final term in power. Question number five: getting there. Technology changing. um, We study technology far too little when we're studying prime ministers and the way they communicate, Ditto presidents. So, letters were the first way of communication. 1869, the first cross-channel telegraph systems. Then the teleprinter. From the eight telephone, from the coming through communication system, email, 1980s mobile phones, and then just coming through here on the way that they transported themselves, the mobile phone technology coming through there from the uh, left, and of course, that has a huge impact on the way that now we record prime ministers' uh, minutes and communications because much that the Theresa May and David Cameron before her, Uh, they're communicating on the bottom right device, uh, and no notes whatsoever are kept, and records are kept of those conversations. That is uh, Wellington coming into number 10 on his horse called Copenhagen, sedan chairs, that there, you can see Gladstone, that, that's a wonderful propaganda photograph, just of the ordinary figure there. That's the Prime Minister there, taking a carriage and omnibus, just like any ordinary uh, person. He is the person in the black, uh, in, in the black top hat. Uh, trains are uh, coming through there, that's the first Prime Minister on a train, that's the underground line. That's in fact, you can still see that railway station uh, there, which is uh, near Baker Street. Uh, the car, that's um, Balfour, the first car to arrive at Number 10 Downing Street, was in 1902. Ocean Liner, that's 1945. That is Churchill uh, coming across to New York. Battleships, that's Churchill in 1943. Aircraft, that's the first Prime Minister to uh, use an aircraft. This here is the figure uh, of Neville Chamberlain who has just come back from seeing Hitler, and he's echoing the words of Disraeli on his return from the Congress of Vienna, uh, and saying that we're going to have peace in our time, which, of course, is exactly what happened. Um, jet aircraft, that's the first that's arriving at Idlewild, um, and that is uh, uh, Macmillan again, 1962, first use of a Prime Minister in a jet aircraft, first use there of a um, Prime Minister uh, in a helicopter, look how happy he looks. Um, completely serenely confident um, and relaxed. Uh, you, as you can see him there. The threats to the Prime Minister are c- under constant threat. Uh, the Gordon riots at Downing Street there in the background. Uh, the riots that very nearly unsettled the uh, Prime Minister at, at the same time as the war was happening over here. Uh, that is, Percival being shot. Uh, The Cato conspiracy was the attempt to try and wipe out the entire cabinet in 1820, a time of high radicalism in the early 19th century. Uh, Robert Peel there, that's the trial of a figure there who tried to assassinate him, uh, assassinated his right-hand man instead, there he is, he was hung. Uh, That's the attempt to try and kill Lloyd George in the First World War. It was called the Pear Street conspiracy because the house was raided uh, the poison that was used, smelt of um, of, of uh, pear drops. That's Winston Churchill who had many, many constant attempts on his life. The man on Churchill's left in the double-breasted pinstripe suit is his security guard. That is the underground bunkers used in 1949 in the event of a nuclear war. Um, Alec Douglas Hume uh, was kidnapped. People arrived to kidnap him during the... 1964 general election but the most exciting thing that happened to him there were a group of students uh, they arrived at his home in Scotland which is where he lived and uh, his maid had the presence of mind to offer the students some beer and by the time he arrived back uh, she would called up the police and the students were Altogether, far fighting Mary to resist arrest. Um, the Brighton bomb was, that is the Thatcher bedroom, that was the attempt uh, of the IRA to kill Margaret Thatcher. What they'd done was to um, put a bomb in the room underneath it and to leave a bomb there with a timing device that went off. They knew that she was going to be in this room in the Grand Hotel. Um, And they timed it to um, perfection almost, and they very nearly killed her, but they did kill other People, they um, were then so angry that they didn't manage to kill her, that they tried, seven years later, to kill her. It took the seven years to plan the next attack, which was a mortar attack, um, by now, in 1990, the year before, Thatcher had gone, Major had taken place, but they still went ahead with the bomb attack. Three mortars launched from Whitehall, that was where Whitehall Palace was, into the gardens of Downing Street so um yes threats are uh, constant against the prime minister uh, and cameron uh, there um uh was uh, uh, that the, there was a particular attempt which is still classified so i can't really talk about that um conclusion there you are uh what are the 10 lessons um you've got the clues what makes a successful prime minister uh first of all don't succeed a strong predecessor um, this could be, and I think many of these lessons apply to how do you be a, how can you be a successful U.S. president. So don't succeed. Don't um, so so Rosebery after Gladstone, uh, Eden after Churchill, and Major after Thatcher. Difficult for Major to take over. So that's always difficult. Um, have experience, but don't get too old. Um, so. Um, Baldwin actually got their experience just about right, their perfect point, be healthy and don't be ill, that's enormously important, far too many prime ministers were ill, Um, have a crisis, you must have a crisis if you want to become uh, famous and successful, but then don't muck muck it up, Uh, the bigger the crisis the better, if you want to uh, be remembered by history, Uh, but the more the hired the premium on getting it right, so uh, Liverpool, Lloyd George, Churchill and Thatcher all got it, their crisis wrong. North Eden and Blair with Iraq got their crisis uh, wrong. Um, so don't be too intellectual, Balfour, Macmillan, Heath also too many sides of the argument. Um, Number six, make your impact early. If you're going to be a successful Prime Minister, President, uh, punch very quickly. Don't hang around too long. Peel, Gladstone, Asquith, Attlee all made their impact uh, very early on in their leaderships. Uh, Very important and not totally relevant to American presidents. Uh, Go to Oxford rather than Cambridge. Um, Be well above average height or well below it. Um, very important uh, don't be average height uh, drink you must drink but don't drink too much so pick the younger Asquith Wilson drank far too much um, but if you don't drink at all you're thought to be boring and you probably won't be very good at relaxing and finally have a supportive spouse um, and uh, fundamentally so there you are that is it ladies and gentlemen uh, you now know <clears throat> how that works. I hope that's taught you just a little bit more. And let's just take any question. That was that was a, um, you were marvelous then. We got through 180 slides. Yeah. Is there an
0: age limit uh,
1: to become Prime Minister uh, in the United Kingdom? Or, you know, Absolutely no age limit, at all. Um, so, um, so when Wilson stood down in 1976 about his best joke uh, that he ever made was, um, He said, I am retiring to make way for an older man, and and that that was Callaghan. No, um, so you can see there the age range is from 23, uh, William Pitt the younger, to 82 with Gladstone, um, or Churchill 76 when he came back. Yes? How is
0: the fix from? Parliament Act uh, affects uh, prime
1: ministerial policy making through five years or? Well, so the fixed end Parliament Act came in 2011. Uh, There had been, there used to be seven years before you had to call an election within seven years, then it came down to five years, uh, but it had to be not more than five years, as you know, from 1911 onwards and then that was twice suspended in 19... 15, there was no general election during the war, and in 1940, there was no general election because of, again, the Second World War. So, um, we now have the uh, Fixed Term Act. That was uh, part of the condition of uh, the founding, the, the involvement of the liberals in the uh, coalition government that happened after from 2010. I think it's a bit early to say that it's really had any effect. Uh, Many prime ministers want to run on for the full five years anyway. I mean, I think it's quite possible that Theresa May would have called a general election if she didn't have that act now, uh, because Labour are obviously in such disarray Uh, with Jeremy Corbyn, who is a um, far too far out to the left and thinks that Fidel Castro was a remarkably fine, humane leader. Um, uh, If you look at what he's been saying about the death of Fidel Castro, uh, so this would be a a very good time for her to call it. In some ways for Theresa May, things will only get worse from this point onwards. They tend to get worse uh, as prime ministers before they then get better again. So she might well, so I think probably the biggest impact so far is um it's made it almost impossible for her to call a, a general election before uh, 2020 there are circumstances in which you can call it general election but mm-hmm. that they are pretty tricky and and uh, to, to, to navigate and to trigger so that that I think is the impact so little so far but this you know do I think she' have called a general election I think she might well I mean, why would she not call a general election, put it that way, Uh, because, you know, because she wouldn't just get a bigger majority. I mean, the majority is down uh, into just above um, double figures. Uh, So she'd have, she would be likely to get a much stronger majority, but also she would have her personal mandate. Now, let's remember that Theresa May does not have a personal mandate. Uh, And it, it damaged Gordon Brown, who took over from Tony Blair in 2007. And those prime ministers take over without winning their, own general election somehow feel emasculated or the female equivalent of emasculated. Um, and, but once you get your personal mandate it gives you much higher personal authority because you can claim that you have won that general election. The irony about David Cameron was that David Cameron won that general election in twenty fifteen, massive personal mandate, but smashed it all up on twenty third of June two thousand sixteen when the referendum was lost. Okay. I'll be shorter another question because there are lots of questions. i I'll, I'll just
0: yeah. yeah sure. uh- Two questions, but first, you have lots of lists, but what informal norms would you highlight pertaining to the role of Prime Minister?
1: What, 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 what? What informal norms, like,
0: uh you know, the circles, or individual ministerial responsibility, collective responsibility, what norms
1: would you highlight being, you know, I don't know, a top three or five list? Right. right, okay, so, um, so knowing what you want to do it is fundamental. Uh, Having a team around you who are highly competent and highly loyal um, is fundamental. It's more important for a prime minister to have a a very successful team in Downing Street than it is to have highly successful ministers. Um, The ministers are, are often not the prime minister's friends. So you look around the cabinet table, you assume that she's appointed or he's appointed them all, that uh, the Prime Minister can fire them all, therefore they owe their primary loyalty to the Prime Minister, but in fact, uh, they do not. They have enormous independent power in in Britain, and in some ways the Prime Minister is more effective when the Cabinet is weak rather than strong, uh, but they do need to have a highly effective team. So, so number one is to know what it is you want to do, and David Cameron had never quite worked out what he wanted to do. Uh, secondly, to have that very strong team inside uh, Downing Street itself. Uh, and thirdly, to, um, uh, to be able to... Uh, to have the credibility of the nation, when the prime minister has credibility, they're taken seriously and respect. This is what Theresa May has at the moment, um, and she has that she is thought to be a credible figure, partly because she dwarfs all the other figures round to Boris Johnson, uh, who is uh, foreign secretary, who is not seen rightly or wrongly to be a serious figure. He was fine as mayor of London because, you know, to play the fool was, was you know, appropriate and, and, and winning and, and, and fun, but as foreign secretary, absolutely not. So, I mean, those would be some of the informal characteristics around the success of the prime minister, which is, and I give you a much longer answer because it's what I study all the time and I think, Thinking all the time, what is it that that you know, why are some people successful and others aren't? So, I hinted at them there. That's more information. We can come back. Do do ask me more, and I can download lots of things. But I just want to get two questions. One here, yeah. My questions on poetic license. Yeah. Um, recently, we saw the audience uh, Peter Morgan's play. Uh, yeah. The Queen's
0: relationship with yeah. the prime ministers. I don't know to what degree it was all speculation, but.
1: No, it's pretty, ac- pretty accurate. It
0: seemed to me that her favourite prime minister based
1: upon the play was a person who you didn't really think too highly of, which was Harold Wilson. Is that correct? No, No, it wasn't correct. Um, I mean, she liked Harold Wilson because Harold Wilson was a great flatterer and uh, was very good with uh, women and, and impressed women and um, the the Queen is, is not unsusceptible to flattery. Um, and to to um, be careful what I'm saying here. So, uh, but um, the relationship with the monarch is is important in a way. But the monarch is. Um, we were talking about this last night at uh, at dinner in New York, and I was asking, you know, with such a highly polarized presidential election race, w- who is defining what it means to be. Uh, American. You know, what does America mean in 2016? In, in Britain, uh, we have the monarch. We have, uh, so during highly polarized events like the Scottish referendum, which would be the equivalent of um, uh, of California, and in fact, the whole of the west of the country um, are voting to secede from uh, the union. Um, it was the monarch who was the unifying force uh, during leaving the European Union. Again, the monarch is the unifying force. I mean, for goodness' sake, she was there during the Blitz. Uh, we have all seen the pictures of, of Margaret Thatcher. I mean, sorry, of, of Mrs. Thatcher. Uh, sorry, of of Queen Elizabeth the Second. She is the most famous face in the world. And even when she dies, and she will at some point, that sense of the monarchy and everything that represents is is the unifying force. So. So it's important for the Prime Minister to be seen to be close to and admiring of the royal family, which is precisely why Jeremy Corbyn has lost credibility as the Labour leader because he's seen to uh, be disrespectful of the monarch but also disrespectful of the traditions of the nation. So for in Britain, we've just had the November the 11th, a very, very significant day in Britain, Armistice Day, uh, the ending of, the, of Remembrance Sunday, Uh, the day of of national memorial and grieving about the loss of of soldiers in, in world wars. And again, he simply can't relate to that. So you need to be, to gain this credibility, which is a, such an important factor for the uh, Prime Minister, you need to be able to be seen to be in tune with the monarch, the royal family, the, his- the history of the nation, to be respecting the things that matter to the nation. Um, and that's important. I don't quite know what the equivalents are in the United States. So I was talking yesterday about you know what's stopping uh, the, the breakup of... Uh, The United States, and are we seriously imagining that in the end of the 21st century the United States will still have 50 states in it? Anyway, moving on. Yep.
0: Was uh, Winston Churchill the only Prime Minister who was also a prolific author?
1: No, Disraeli wrote novels um, and uh, was. Uh, a successful novelist, many of them have written their own memoirs, some would say they are works of fiction, so that they... Um, uh, uh, they, uh, Almost all of them have written uh, memoirs, Macmillan was the publishing, is Macmillan the publishing, known as the publisher here, was a writer himself and, and from the publishing family, so... Others of them have written, um, Balfour wrote a, a, a famous philosophical text called In Praise of Philosophical Doubt, um, but Churchill, I mean Churchill won the Nobel Prize um, and turned up, unlike Bob Dylan, um, to, to, to collect it, and um, so, uh, but it was also a very fine painter, I mean I think Churchill would probably be the greatest soul, the, the, the most rounded, Uh, of all those figures and was there at a high point. If we look at the special relationship, which is 100 years old, I was talking talking about this earlier, it's 100 years old, next year I would date it to uh, 1917 and the entry, the very symbolically enormously important factor, which I don't think the country has fully woken up to here, the involvement in the uh, First World War as the beginning then of that commitment to, uh, even though isolationism followed for 20 years after, but the reckoning uh, that uh, America needed to be involved with Europe, and particularly Britain. So there have been five high points with five low points in the special relationship. Churchill there at the uh, the obvious high point, uh, and the personal chemistry with the president being all important. You you don't get any high points when you don't have that chemistry, and the low points happen when there's zero chemistry, such as between Harold Wilson and L.B. Johnson. Uh, zero or, or Nixon and Heath, um, it just doesn't work. You, there needs to be personal chemistry. Okay, so Churchill, yes, biggest writer, yes. Question here.
0: Um, there was a film the way back uh, called The Queen.
1: The Queen, yeah, lovely film. Is that true? Yes, it was true. I mean, it, it was beautifully done. It was Helen Mirren, wasn't it? Helped me there. Was it Helen Mirren? Yeah. Um, and it was... I mean, that was a very traumatic time in Britain, but, and, and that was the time of the greatest danger for Queen Elizabeth II. Uh, I mean, she is much revered, but she doesn't come across as a, as a warm person. That's the one part of her arsenal of gifts, that she doesn't seem that you would... That she, she, uh, she's not lovable. You know, there's something about the Queen which is deeply that you respect very much, but you but people find it harder to to, to, to feel love towards her. And but Diana, in contrast, uh, epitomised love and 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 aroused the heart support of the nation. And when after that uh, death in Paris um, at the end of August 1997. And um, you, uh, she died uh, with uh, uh, Dodi Fayed. She, um, uh, it, it was then a terrible moment for the nation because the nation identified with the, with the heart of Diana rather than with the intellect and the, 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 the rigor of Queen Elizabeth II. And for, there was a perilous week and Tony Blair, who was a master of improvisation, Uh, Came up with that line uh, about the people's princess and spoke very beautifully and memorably in Westminster Abbey um, and seemed together to to capture the spirit. And then the Queen uh, was persuaded to come down from Balmoral and to be there with Harry and Will. Uh, and uh, and so, so yes, it brilliantly caught it, and 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 you know, that was that was the moment of greatest peril, I think, in the reign of the Queen since 1952, when her father died in the spring of 1952, and she was in Kenya and flew straight back, um, and that was George the sixth. And apart from that, she's pretty much got it right, and and the reasons why she got it wrong, and the film didn't really put, put portray the reasons and what she was thinking about. At that time and what would be appropriate for her. And you know, her, you know, her mindset, let's think about it. You know, she she was very affected by her grandfather. Who was her grandfather? It was George V, who was Prime Minister, sorry, who was monarch during the First World War. And very, very traditional, uh, as you would know, and her father, the wonderful George VI, who had the stammered, was that film shown over here, The King's Speech um you know she she has quite an austere um unchummy style, and she 's adapted and, and, and since and 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 become you know she's learnt so yes um uh, i never we underestimate the importance of the royal family and, and the head of state and i mean look now look at look at look at trump i mean you know the head of government in Britain hasn't managed to appeal to trump and what's all the great hope in britain that the head of state has invited uh, the president-elect to come over to uh the uk and there have been lots of pictures of what what he's going to experience at, at windsor castle and at um, buckingham palace and st james's palace i mean huge power uh, we underestimate political scientists hardly factor in at all uh, the importance of the head of state in Britain and when they do it's in a snide kind of way but I mean what could be more graphic to illustrate the power of the monarch than the overture to Trump and the response from Trump that he didn't give to the Prime Minister. Yep, question there. Uh this policy, maybe
0: regarding uh, comparing to the former the first ladies in the US Talk
1: about the influence of the spouses. Uh, yeah. Uh, but, but just so we know, just so that, because nothing's worse than when people uh, keep going. So, Shall we talk for five minutes more and, and then end there? Does that seem about right? Yeah. So, so if I talk for five, five minutes more and, and then you'll know. And, and then I'll just take those questions uh, and I will stop at um, after or before 5 2. Uh So. The spouse in Britain has no formal role. Uh, it's for, therefore different to the first uh, lady. Um, and indeed, until Norma Major married to John Major, there was no even secretary, I mean, for her, and she'd have to answer her own correspondence. And um, so the importance is less. Uh, their own speaking engagement timetable, uh, less formally appearing beside their um, uh, husband and speaking. It's much more behind the scenes. It's the emotional support. It's the heavy emotional toll that this job takes of that figure and therefore the compensating support emotionally that the spouse gives, including looking after the family, which again widens emotional base support for the figure in the limelight, the Prime Minister. So it's a different, so when I list that as a factor, I'm saying this is important, not for their political weight. Very, very unusual for the Prime Minister's spouse to speak. Dennis Thatcher never spoke. Philip May, who is the Prime Minister's uh, wife, currently never speaks. Just n- neither does Angela Merkel's husband as we know. Uh, very similar position there. So it, it's the behind the scenes that makes an enormous difference. And whether our relationship is stressful or n- isn't there at all, uh, it makes the job Almost unbearable for that person if they are to be emotionally connected. I mean, they can retreat into an emotion-free zone, uh, but that's then not going to get them connecting very well to the nation. So to have them, to have them operating um, uh, well, that relationship is very important. That was the point I was trying to make, and uh, that was good. That was good analogy. The question here, and the question there, and then, we'll, and then we'll finish that. Yes. You
0: suggested to prime ministers to have a crisis to handle. Didn't
1: yeah. That- Have have a good have a good war. Do
0: you notice any significant pattern of difference between handling uh, say international issues versus domestic ones?
1: Um, Well, just tell me a little bit more what you are looking for in that question. I'll try and answer it.
0: Like for instance, uh, say secession of Scotland would be a much more domestic. (laughs) <laughs> yes,
1: that that would have, that would have gone down badly. Yeah, I mean he was very worried uh, that night, and um, he was very worried for a few days before it. And he started talking about Lord North, and comparing the loss of Scotland to uh, Lord North uh, and the colonies. And um, so uh, you, unfortunately. The success in that vote, fifty-five, forty-five percent in the referendum in September 2014, didn't really, it wasn't really seen as a lift for him. Because, uh, but, but if you have a domestic crisis, something that disturbs the nation, a huge economic crisis, um, or a um, uh, natural disaster. Uh, or a war this provides an opportunity for the Prime Minister to ha- to show real leadership. It's quite hard to really make your mark as a uh, Leader as a Prime Minister unless you have really been tested at a moment of grave crisis Some Prime Ministers then try to get that same energy and focus and spotlight on them by then uh, by um, uh taking risks and, and doing unnecessary things by introducing a whole series of policies uh, which, in fact, the nation doesn't need, uh, which then end up being rejected. So, um, for Churchill, uh, most interesting just to make a quick point about him, Churchill was not as successful Prime Minister. There's, there's a very famous book written by a man called Robert Rhodes James called Churchill, of Study in Failure, and, and the book finishes in 1939. His career had been of spectacularly unsuccessful. Uh, he, he was famously associated with uh, the figure behind the Gallipoli, the Dardanelle uh, campaign in 1915, for example, and, and as Chancellor of the Exchequer between 1924 and 1929. He was responsible for the return to the gold standard. In 1925, he was um, uh, far too aggressive and abrasive during the general strike in nineteen twenty six, he was on the wrong side of arguments in nineteen twenty seven, he was on the wrong side of arguments over India in the nineteen thirties. Um and so and yet there was a war. Uh, and his his talents were supremely uh suited to uh, fighting that uh, that war uh, not the least his power of oratory, his ability to inspire the nation um and and to work with people and though they often disagreed with him principally his uh, chief of the imperial general staff his head of the army called Allenbrook um, as his diaries reveal, there was still an enormous respect for him. He was an extraordinary person, uh, and he picked extraordinary people too. So, uh, yes, um, so having a having a crisis and, and getting it right, not getting it wrong, like Blair with Iraq, uh, or Eden with Suez. Uh, they were two wars that were precipitated by the Prime Minister, uh, or Chamberlain misreading. I mean, one can understand why Chamberlain misread Hitler, um, why he, the nation didn't want only 20 years after it lost 900,000 people in the... Um, first world war to go through another war i can understand why he was reserved and trying to hold peace but still it was a spectacular misreading of uh adolf hitler and his plans it should have been much more evident what he was trying to be doing yep yeah, question yes, sir. um alone
0: among the p5 leaders of the world, they Prime Minister does not have a military aid to carry around with the nuclear codes. Mm. Could you explain how the nuclear deterrent works in the UK system of cabinet government and how the command and control works from the PM down?
1: Yeah, um, so uh, they... Uh, the Britain has been, uh, since it exploded its uh, first... Um, uh, atomic weapon in the Montebello Islands in October 1962, 1952, and it's the first thermonuclear bomb in 1957. Britain has uh, had these uh, systems and Polaris and Trident, and uh, the Prime Minister carries around the codes with them. And one of the first acts that they um, experience after they enter Downing Street happened to Theresa May, is they're drawn into the cabinet room and the cabinet secretary, who's the head of the civil service. The head's official in Britain uh, presents them uh, with the choice that they can write their letter of last resort, which are the letters that go to the submarine commanders and saying in the event of the um, uh, of a nuclear war, uh, this is my decision to you about whether or not you're going to fire the nuclear weapons. And nobody knows at all. It's, it is the closest guarded, guarded secret in Britain about what the Prime Minister's right to those submarine commanders. So that is the letter of last resort. Uh, even the existence of the letters of last resort was a um, closely guarded secret. I talk about it in a book I have got out next week on the cabinet office, but others have talked about it before. Uh, That's the moment that it really is is the dawning realisation of them about their own particular power. Yes? Are those letters
0: sealed until
1: the time in which they... Yes. So the commander doesn't know until they... Yeah, but I can uniquely reveal for the first time in history uh, what the various prime ministers since um, Anthony Eden have, have written. I could tell you that. But I don't know, so I can't. Um, But I have, um, but I thank you very, very much indeed. And it's been very nice indeed to talk to you.